Welcome to the Axial Podcast. Axial is an early-stage investment firm based in San Francisco. We partner with great founders and inventors investing in early-stage life science companies often when they are no more than an idea. Axial is fanatical about helping the rare inventor who is compelled to build their own enduring business. Hey, we're recording, Margo. Get really excited. All we right. just had a little check for 10 minutes. I guess I, I'll just start and say I grew up in Washington State. Um, I grew up in a small town that's outside of Seattle, um, but anyone who's been to the suburbs in Washington uh, will know that you don't have to go that far out of Seattle until you're like in the forest. Like it doesn't take that, like the suburbs kind of quickly diminish into more rural areas. And so I grew up in a town called Black Diamond um, and it was named that because I don't know, somewhere, sometime in the early, early 20th century, uh, they used to mine coal there. And it was supposed to be like the best coal uh, in the Western United States. And they called it Black Diamond because it was supposed to be relatively clean burning. Um, and so anyway, it's kind of the history of the little town. And it was kind of, a, it was always a joke really, because, you know, we're not really burning coal anymore. Uh, although I think they did kind of ramp up production at some point, like during the Trump administration. Um, and then, it, as far as I know, kind of <laughs> dropped back off. Um, so there is there is still, I guess, a coal mine out there. But I I I grew up there, and I grew up in a family where, I mean, my my parents they like science, they appreciate it, but no, they weren't they weren't scientists. Um, and you know, we it's not it's not like we you know, new scientists or new physicians. Um, it was, um, I guess, kind of outside of what was normal. And I, but they always encouraged me to be really creative and to think about, um, you know, careers in these types of, of, of fields. Um, but we didn't really know, I never really knew what to do, <laughs> I guess I'd say. Um, and I always like, I'm a per was a person who was obsessed with details. Like I loved the nitty gritty details of things. Um, and so I really ended up thriving in chemistry um, where understanding reaction mechanisms and the, the details of that was really important. Um, and I took up high school chemistry class where my teacher, he, um, I mean, he was maybe the first teacher who really told me, like, you're actually good at this. Cool. Um, and honestly, I don't know. <laughs> I think, like, humans are motivated by praise. <laughs> and it was one of those things where I'm like, I think I am good at this. And I do love it. Um, and this was around my, like, sophomore year of high school, which would have been 2008. Uh, we're kind of entering the Great Recession. Um, I think for a lot of people of my age group, like that time, especially if you were graduating high school or graduating college was like very formative, um, because it's not like, I think for, for people who are maybe younger and who have experienced the last 10 years of prosperity, uh, you know, it's kind of surprising, I guess. And for, for me, that was like, a very formative time where I was like, oh, okay, 
Um, and so I took part in a program in Washington State where instead of entering um, I, like a four-year college immediately, I actually started a community at a community college. Um, and I did that partially during high school. So I left um, my high school and went to a community college instead. Um, and, and that was incredible because one, it saved me money. Like I, it, the, the state of Washington paid for that. Um, I got college credits and it was a small school. It was called Green River Community College at that time. They've since mm. turned it into a four-year college called Green River College. Um, but I look back on it and it was the best decision that I ever made, honestly. It was, it was great because I had professors there who really took an interest in me, um, who really encouraged me, who, who told me like, this is how you transfer to a four-year school. This is how you apply to graduate school. All of these things that I, I just didn't know and I had no one to tell me. Um, and it was, it was the people at Green River Community College, um, specifically Keith Clay. He was my yeah. physics professor and he was incredible. It was him oh, and I had an organic okay. chemistry professor too, who I remember sat me down and he said, like, I think that you're the type of person who can do anything you want. Like, don't limit yourself. I think you can do whatever you want to do. And I think about it all the time, actually. <laughs> like I have it burned into my mind, awesome. this person sitting me down and telling me this. Yeah. So like, um, I, I went to high school in the recession too, and it was very impactful to see like, family friends go bankrupt and lose their houses and you're yeah. like in high school you're like oh geez i better you know i think it's maybe a very cheap person in some ways of uh, money and so what was it like to be in high school and go to college like just like did it force you to like become more mature did it force you to maybe take chemistry more seriously science more seriously like did it like like what what was the impact like it seems like you got a lot of encouragement but for you in terms of like progressing in life um how did how did it like just to go from high school to college it's a very mature thing you do it so early um they get two years yeah. earlier than most people three years like did it force you to like think i gotta really be good at the sign did it force you to work harder and maybe that's the best better, better question oh oh my gosh yes well uh, i think you know this time was really hard it was it was hard for my family it was hard for a lot of the people around me. And it just, I felt like the stakes were high. Like when I started in college, I felt like the stakes were high. Like I, like there was no room for failure, which is, which is not true. And, you know, I try to, you know, now encourage the people in my lab that, you know, you can fail, we can, we'll figure it out, you know, don't. But at that time I felt like there was no room for failure. And so it was like, I, I think I had to grow up pretty quickly because I was, at this point, I, I started, I did, I started in my junior year of high school, I think. And so I was around 16. Uh, I had a car, so I drove, drove myself to the community college. I worked jobs um, and I like was a hostess at a restaurant. I was also a waitress for a while. Um, and, you know, there, there was just like no, um, I guess I, I put my whole self into everything, everything that I did at that time. And I mean, I still do. And I think that it also taught me that 
like I needed to be really independent. Like my, you know, my family had things that they were dealing with at the same time. And so I just felt like I, and I was also the oldest, I have a younger sister. Um, and so I didn't really also have a person ahead of me who had done this before, um, as far as a sibling goes. And so it was, <laughs> it was very much like you figure it out. Um, I think I did. Like, I mean, of course, there are ups and downs you and everything. Really figured it out. But. Yeah, you you definitely figured it out. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know you were going to come to college. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, okay, I thought you just went to Washington, and then you went, you went to UC, you went to Stanford, UC Stanford, and then now you're here. I thought I just assumed like a you know a really vanilla trajectory, but it, I can see why you you do the work you you do because you know you have to be all in so young, and so. Was there like an experience where you realized I want to be a professional scientist or maybe did you always believe that, um, that they, this could be a job, not just like uh, something I felt too when I was, you do scientific research, it's just fun initially. But then there's a moment where you realize maybe I can do this for a living. Like when did that spark click? Was it like a professor telling you? Was it reading something? It was definitely when when I was at Green River, because I didn't know, I thought that my, like the best trajectory for a person with a si interest in science was to go to medical school. And so my trajectory at this point was mostly, was like, go to medical school. Um, and it was at this time that I was talking to my professors and um, in, in particular, Keith, and I, he said, no, you, like, you can go get a PhD and you can be a professor and professors don't just teach you know some of them also do research or they primarily do research um and this is what this looks like and this is how you do it um and it was through those types of conversations that i really set up this long-term plan where it was like okay i'm going to transfer to the university of washington it's an amazing research school like i need to find a lab as soon as possible to take me and like mentor me in research. So the summer before I transferred, I just emailed everyone I could. And I said, like, this is this is what I'm interested in, you know, this is where I'm coming from. Like, will you let me in your lab? And you know, I got a lot of non-responses. Um, but I um eventually got a response from um a scientist in the chemistry department there named Jim Mayer. Um Jim is not at UW anymore. He is at Yale, but Jim was just so wonderful, really, really supportive, really took me in. And so I started with him um, the summer before I transferred. Um, and he really like, uh, he, him and also my mentors within the lab really, um, I think, nurtured, nurtured me as a young scientist, because I mean, I didn't really, I didn't know anything when I started about like true research. Um, and they, they helped me a lot. And I, so when I started, we, um, were studying this, this property of some cofactors that are, um, um, in certain enzymes in the body. Um, and we were, we were studying something called proton coupled electron transfer. We we're studying a property of them. Um, but it was just the cofactor and I coming, coming from chemistry. Enzymes were like amazing to me because like they're specific and they're fast and they do these really complicated reactions and they're so mysterious. So they just seemed magical. 
And so when I started with Jim, um, we were working on these cofactors and I'm like, I just, I really want to work on an enzyme. And no one in his lab had worked with an enzyme before. And so I ended up working <laughs> for a little bit on it, on an enzyme. I think we just like purchased it from Sigma. I didn't purify it or anything, <laughs> but um, he at least like indulged me to that, to that extent. And then through, you know, interacting with him and reading like primarily the work of Francis Arnold and Danny Tofik, um, I just became totally enthralled with enzymes, enzymes, how they evolve, how you can force them to evolve in the lab, how you can look at them in nature. Um, and so I knew I wanted to go to a biochem biochemistry department when I went to grad school. And so I wrote this like NSF proposal. I didn't even tell Jim, I think, until I had already written it. And I was like, I wrote, I'm writing this NFS, NSF proposal for a graduate research fellowship. And it was all about how we were gonna use um, directed evolution to evolve this enzyme that, I don't know, was gonna do something cool. And I you know, gave it to my mentor, I gave it to Jim and they're like, yeah, sure, submit it. And I submitted it and I ended up also getting funding. And so I ended up coming in with an NSF research, uh, graduate research fellowship um, when I was at, like applying to grad school, I'd already applied and then I knew I got it. And so at that point I became like a pretty competitive applicant. And well, everybody wanted uh, right, you paid for. So everybody's like, come yeah. on in, wherever. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think at that point, two people were like, you know, I, I had interviewed around. I primarily interviewed in California because I, I knew I wanted to leave Washington. I didn't want to go as far as the East Coast. I wanted, you know, I'm right now I'm within a two hour-ish flight from my family. Um, and so it just seemed like a good fit. And so I, I interviewed all over California. Interviews so fun. Oh man. They're so much fun. So much. I just the best part for me, at least, the best part of grad school is interviewing. It just go to Stanford and Berkeley, and then you just have a great two days talking to scientists. You talk to scientists all yes. day and just party. It's like the best thing ever. And it's surprising. I was like shocked that like they pay for them. I was like, what? <laughs> I, just, I went to like 20 interviews. Like one time oh, wow. I did 10 days of interviews, went to Caltech. UCSF, Berkeley to Washington. I did a whole little, it, it was like awesome. Cause you're in college and you get to jump on an airplane on the weekend and then you're just like, oh, you're yeah. a little getaway. It's really fun. It was really fun. It was, it, I remember it being like bi super busy cause I was a senior in college and I like had finals and I cared a lot about my GPA. And so I was like, shit, I have to, <laughs> I have to like keep up on my homework and do all these like fun things. But honestly, it was amazing. And so I I interviewed all around and it ended up like basically my final choices were all the Bay Area schools. It was like, am I gonna go to UCSF? Am I gonna go to Berkeley or am I gonna come to Stanford? I and I ended up going to Stanford. And you know, you know, we don't know if it would have been my outcome would have been different going to one of these other places, but Stanford was amazing. It was it it was a really really great choice. Um, cool. And so I started in 2014 in um, Stanford biochemistry. And one of one of actually the motivating factors for going to Stanford is that that time, 
they had some, they had a dual degree program that wasn't, so it wasn't the MSTP program where people do both MDs and PhDs fully, but this was a degree program for people who are interested in translational science, um, but didn't want to see patients. You know, a lot of MSTPs, they end up doing only research, right? And so for me, I, I thought that this seemed like a really cool opportunity. Um, and so in addition to my PhD, I did a master's of science in medicine. And so it, it is effectively the first two years of medical school um, and a short clinical rotation, but you don't go back to the clinic after your PhD, um, like many uh, MSTPs do. So kind of worst part of med school, to be honest. I have friends in med school that are gonna in like the first two years are the worst. Why would you why would you do that? Why do but like what was the game plan? There was it like you wanted to do research, was that long-term plan to do research that would have human impact? Or was or, or something yes. else? Yeah. But also I think it was just it just felt like an opportunity that I just did not want to give up because it was free like I, I didn't pay tuition for medical school um i'd been coming from chemistry so i actually didn't know a lot of human biology um and so you start in medical school and i also am like a person who was pretty good at test taking so it wasn't particularly like stressful for me to take a lot of exams um so i started and i took like immunology i took like developmental biology um, I dissected an entire human being from like toe to head, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, it was experiences that like, I, I felt like I could not have gotten if I didn't take advantage of this program. And even if I never, even if, if I never did anything translational, which is, you know, not true, but if I never did anything translational ever, it just, it just seemed like a transformative experience I didn't want to give up. Um, and so I did that, but I also kind of <laughs> maybe like the level of intensity of me at that moment, uh, I tried to also do my PhD concurrently. So I didn't like do just medical school and PhD because I didn't want to push myself too long. So I did like the medical school courses along with, with like doing my rotations and yeah, it was, <laughs> it was a crazy time. <laughs> that's, that's nuts. That's nuts. Um, Okay, so let me be focused on the, so like choosing a lab, uh, you were yeah. in Hirschlag, uh, if that's yeah. correct. And so yeah. I'm assuming a lot of, I'm assuming every lab wanted you to join. Because you had a fellowship and hardworking, you're just like a perfect, perfect person. So I'm assuming you had everyone, get Gary Nolan, everyone coming down to you, trying to get you to join. How did you end up choosing Daniel's lab out of all the choices you've had? Well, you know what's so funny? is that like, I think at that time, I didn't realize that like students are hot commodities and people want them to join their labs. Mm. I think like, and this is something I try to tell the students now is that you have a lot of agency actually. When you're coming yeah. into graduate school, you have a lot of agency. And, but none of us feel that way. <laughs> and I mean, well, okay, maybe other people do. I didn't feel that way. And so I, um, I was doing like these medical school courses. I knew I wanted to study enzymes. It was almost just like a guaranteed choice I would join Dan's lab. Um, and I mean, Dan comes, Dan Hershog, he came from 
Bill Jenks was his graduate mentor. So it's like a long history of really, really impressive entomologists, like people who were foundational in, in that field. Tom Sheck as well, if I remember correctly. He did, he was his postdoc. Yeah. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So part of the lab studied, studied rye designs and RNA binding proteins, and then part of the lab studied protein enzymes. Um, and I guess another thing that was very important to me, and I, I also um, try to tell students this now, is that, I mean, yes, I was very interested in the science, but also, you know, I'm a person who's interested in a lot of science. I actually can get really into a lot of science. And I think it is as important or even more important to choose your mentor. Um, like that is an important aspect of choosing lab. And I just knew from my interactions with Dan and from talking to people that Dan was a person who was committed to mentorship, like very, very committed, um, would push you. Like he, his was a lab that you would grow a lot. And I felt like, I, I mean, maybe at that time too, I was just like, I, I just came from a community college here and, it's, and then UW, and then I, here I am at Stanford. Like, I want to take full advantage of this experience. Like, I want someone to, to like push me to um, be the best I could be. And I, I felt like Dan was that person. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and I remember talking to some of his students at the time and I was like, what, you know, should I choose based on science or mentorship? And I'm like, I'm leaning towards seeing, like choosing my lab mostly based on the mentor. Um, and some senior students who I really respected were like, yes, that, that's the choice that you should make. Um, and I think that it like that was definitely the right choice. Yeah, I think it's always like the tension of like, do you join a real famous lab, big people, maybe less hands-on, or do you try to find a lab that's it's often like the thing is like the old lab or the new lab. And so mm -hmm. and you start your open lab, there's probably certain people you attract who are more willing to take a risk and join an up-and-coming lab than the lab that's already established. Did you have any of that too? Mm -hmm. Where it's like Dan's already established well, and, and, or, or did you maybe not, but yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I definitely think you're right in that sense. Although I think maybe Dan's lab was an anomaly in the sense that he was an established lab with kind of like in some ways a new lab energy in the sense he was involved. Um, at that point, the lab was relatively large, but um, you know, by my second or third year, we were kind of a, a smaller and cohesive group. Um, and you know, Dan is very busy, still as busy was busy. Um, but always made the time for you. So, I mean, I talked to him about science weekly. We emailed very frequently. It's the kind of thing he was very involved as opposed to, you know, there are, you know, other very large labs where there just isn't enough time for the PI to go around, right? Like I, I really empathize with that now, <laughs> um, just how much your time you lose, but somehow Dan had time for all of us. <laughs> um, so it, it was nice. How much would you say did a ton of diligence for this decision? Like, or did you, or, or was it kind of a gut feeling where it's like, okay, talk to no, a few people. It was a gut feeling. Okay, cool. It was totally by the, by my gut. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. Cause I, I did two rotations and I, I did Dan's rotation and I said, I'm joining your lab. So I didn't, I didn't belabor this decision too long. It was kind of like, this is a good feeling. And I think also, like there are decisions a person should not make, right? It's like very clear, like you should not make this decision. Um, but sometimes you have multiple good options 
And the best thing you can do as a person is to choose an option and commit to it fully. And yeah. that's what I did. Okay, I'm, I'm just kind of getting, you know, you see her, Margot's all in, and then she just takes full advantage of everything. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying. That's, uh, that's kind <laughs> of the characterization, that's the common thread that's happening in your story. And so you're at Stanford, and you're, you're joining Dan's lab. How did you choose a project? What, did Dan give you some ideas? Did you come up with ideas? Was it iterative? Uh, did you have like some failures halfway through and have to start again? You know, kind of what was that kind of, you know, so I'm always jealous of the people who get a paper published in two years. You know, there's a, that PhD and they, during the rotation, you already have a publication. Like those people frustrate, those people I really dislike just because I'm jealous, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but uh, you joined Dan's lab. How did that, how did that process go in choosing a project and then actually, you know, implementing it and then maybe solving challenges that do come in the way? Yeah, so I actually started on the RNA side of the lab. And mm -hmm. I remember during my rotation, um, we, let's see, I tell the story to my students. It's kind of like a, it's, it's intended to be a bit of like proverbial, I guess. It's like, um, I was, it was during my rotation. I had a wonderful rotation mentor and I don't even, I don't even quite remember what experiment we were doing, but we were measuring, I think, the, the binding of a catalytically dead ribozyme to a bit of RNA, something like this. And we were running these big gels. And at that time, we were running these really thin, large RNA gels. And I don't know, they're like a foot tall and a foot wide or something like this. They're huge. And we had a lot of conditions that we wanted to test. And, you know, and my, uh, my rotation mentor was like let's just run one condition one gel and i was like but we've got nine gel boxes like we let's run nine gels and he was like that's insane like you can't run nine gels at the same time and these gels are finicky they're huge they leak it was just kind of like a total mess and i set up i stayed up really late and i like i set up all these gels and of course every single one of them failed every single one and so now I like, well, <laughs> whenever my students are like, I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm like, all right, this is a nine gel situation. Like maybe we should like stick to one gel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I think maybe that experience, I don't know why I was like, hmm, maybe, I don't know, maybe I won't work on the RNA side of things, but maybe go back to my original love, which is protein uh, enzymes. And so <laughs> after my rotation, I started on protein enzymes and Dan had had like, this long-term project studying um, the role of hydrogen bonds in enzyme catalysis in the active site. And it was very fundamental work. It was the kind of work that you would see in a textbook kind of thing. Because um, there have been a lot of models about um, to what extent and to what magnitude hydrogen bonds are contributing to enzyme catalysis. And you know, some people said like you can account for all of enzyme catalysis based on hydrogen bonds within the active site that are really short and really strong. Um, but a lot of work from previous students in Dan's lab. So it started with Shu Oshan, who is one of Dan's first students. She's now a professor at Caltech. Um, that work had kind of been picked up by um, Paul Sagala, who is now a, a, a professor at the University of Utah. Um, and so when I started, I started studying hydrogen bonds, I kind of picked up this historical project. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I worked on that. And then at the same time, I was also reading a lot about enzyme evolution and this like idea that enzymes are not static. They are actively evolving and they have history too. And that just like blew my mind. And I said, I want to also, you know, you know, we have this project. It's really cool. We have, we're using this model system. I also want to study how enzymes adapt and evolve. Mm-hmm. And at first, Dan was like, and he will tell you this. He'll say like, he told me not to do this project. He's like, it's <laughs> like, this is, this is not a good idea. Like stay doing what you're doing. Um, and I think I just like did it anyway, or I'm sure I told him, but maybe I didn't tell him. I don't know. At some point, this project, I started taking on this project and doing it kind of on the side, um, studying enzyme temperature adaptation. And when we started to get, like, I started to get some some really interesting results. Um, and at that point, Dan admitted he was like, oh, yeah, this is this is cool. This is a good idea. <laughs> oh. So then like that's kind of often that's often the history of like science is like the the data that's in the garbage can becomes interesting or the side project works out and so it yeah. seems like you had a you had a defined project and then you got inspired to do something else from that initial start and so like what was the like, the key experiment you did that you realized that oh like what what thread did you pull you start realizing oh that maybe that like uh you're, you're kind of redefining how enzymes adapt to temperature. You know, I think there's the common mm-hmm. theme to this is like epistasis is like the common framework. And then your paper kind of, kind of put the, shifted it towards a different direction. What was that key experiment you realized? Okay, I've got it. I got the story. Mm, okay. So we had been, we'd been using this model system, this model enzyme system in the lab. And it's called Kiosker isomerase. A lot of people have studied it. It's kind of classic. But even though there had been almost 70 years of research on this enzyme, um, it only two, pretty much just two orthologs of the enzyme. And by orthologs, I mean like versions from different organisms. Basically just two orthologs had been studied. Mm. And kind of for non-enzymologists, um, like enzymes can have the same general function. They can have the same role within the cell, but vary in sequence identity enormously. So these two particular orthologs in this particular um, family that this enzyme is from, is pretty divergent in sequence space while maintaining a common fold and a common function. So I started to look at like multiple sequence alignments of this particular model enzyme that we'd really only studied like two of them. Um, and I started to notice within these multiple sequence alignments that there were there were changes in the active site of, of this enzyme, which typically you don't see. Oftentimes you see like active sites are 100% conserved and it's the stuff around them that changes um, throughout evolution. And so I just ordered a few different orthologs. I mean, it's the time when um, getting like a gene synthesized started to become a lot cheaper. And so I just ordered a few orthologs. And I had, um, in this earlier project, been studying hydrogen bonds within the actocyte of ketoceride isomerase. And one of the residues that's different 
in the actosite between differentially different orthologs was one of these hydrogen bond donors. So it was like this key residue that I had already been studying and we thought was so important. And we know when you mutate it, that um, catalysis goes down. So I was like, why is it, why is it changing? Like, why would some other organism mutate, have this, this residue mutated? Um, and it wouldn't cause like a deleterious fitness effect. So I was, I was perplexed by this and we ordered the genes and it also just happens that that organism is a thermophilic organism. So it grows in hot temperatures. Um, and as temperature increases, um, proteins, including enzymes, um, are less likely to be folded. So if you have a, um, a protein that's, you know, from a, a human or something that's adapted to more moderate temperatures and you were to put it at hot temperatures, it would unfold and you'd have no function. And so it turns out that this, this single residue within the active site of ketosteroid isomerase helped to confer um, thermostability. So if you mutate it from its tyrosine, which you find in most mesophilic or medium temperature loving orthologs, if you mutate that to a serine. Um, oh, sorry, excuse me, it's an aspartate. Sorry, it's an aspartate mesophiles. And then if you mutate that to a serine, you increase stability. And so that enzyme is more stable at high temperatures, um, but you decrease activity at the same time. So there's this trade-off at this residue. Um, and so we worked out all of the, the mechanisms, the molecular mechanisms that were happening and that conferred these different phenotypes at different temperatures. Um, so like, it's, it seems like, a lot of this stuff was like hidden in plain sight because people had to really just compare to like, I think your paper like analyze a thousand families of these, of these is, is, is a steroid isomerase. Like, yes. Like, well, it's we, like, yeah. we, we kept having these kind of conversations between Dan and I, and we're like, someone has to have done this. Yeah. Like they have to, it just seems obvious. Right. But it was one of those cases where, you know, people have been studying studying temperature adaptation for a while, but it was either like not the right system, or we um, we just didn't have the sequencing data to start looking at all of these families. Because that is one thing is that the last, let's say, like about the last twenty years, there have been explosions of technology in different fields that really are now enabling us to do new things. And one of them is sequencing. So we've like sequencing is a lot cheaper. So now you can just go into these databases and you can get sequences from tens of thousands of organisms. And we now have computing powder, power to be able to make alignments of them and to start analyzing them in ways we weren't able to before. Um, so I think that's maybe why people hadn't done these types of things prior. Um, yeah, I think there's kind of this like mm -hmm. asking the right questions with the right data. And so you have to like, yeah. you know, so I, have, I have friends like that too, who publish papers on some really seemingly simple thing. And then it's like, why did nobody ever think about this? And it just took, when you look back on that, what kind of state of mind or like, what, what do you think the success was? Was it just being a, a grad student and having a beginner's mind or was it some training some other problem you worked on before did some past thing you worked on set you up to do this or is something you read maybe like by happenstance yes okay so i mean there there were two very formative papers actually and they're not in big journals or anything it's just that i 
had been reading the literature about enzyme evolution and there was a paper uh, maybe 2001 from Francis Arnold and it was it was like a review mostly of some of the work they had been doing at that time um doing directed evolution for temperature adaptation so it was like that particular paper um along with another paper from uh Dan Tofik's lab about also enzyme temperature adaptation and that's what made me start thinking like temperature is really an interesting axis to study enzymes particularly but proteins in general in part because it puts put, like unique selection pressures on proteins um, with respect to properties of enzymes that we care a lot about. Like one of the big kind of goals of enzymology from the last, I don't know, century, I guess, is could we eventually design an enzyme with a particular property? But that's really, really hard. Um, and the properties we really care about, though, are activity and stability. And those are the properties that are under selection when enzymes adapt to temperature. Because, like I said before, as, as temperature goes up, the probability that a protein will be unfolded increases. But as temperature goes down, all reactions, all chemical reactions, including enzymatic reactions, decrease in rate. And that's why, you know, you can put your food in the refrigerator and bacteria grow really slowly because all their metabolism is really slow at those temperatures. Um, and so that was really the motivation for setting temperature adaptation. I think temperature is also very relevant for our current time period where the environment is not static, it's changing, things are getting warmer. Um, and we have more temperature extremes. So organisms, like basically every non-mammal organism <laughs> has to adapt to different temperatures and they have to do that at the molecular level. So I think that it's, it's relevant to that, but really my the way I got into it is how do we use this axis of temperature to narrow our focus on parts of proteins that are important for either activity and or stability. And so that's kind of where I came from and still I think what motivates some of the stuff that we do in my lab now. Yeah, I think I think what the best selling protein at high temperatures is like TAC polymerase. So yeah, it's a, it's a big opportunity. Just finding proteins that function at high temperatures or even cold ones, like extreme relevance for tools in the context of climate change and also just like synthetic biology and even therapeutics. So maybe we can shift mm -hmm. gears near the end. So you 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 get the, you kind of make this discovery and you do all this work to publish the paper. Maybe we can talk about that another time. How did you make the transition from grad school to a postdoc to a fellow at UCSF? And then how did you then, as you set up that lab, set research directions, think about the problems you want to solve, right? Uh, your long-term vision uh, and, and, and where you see the lab going. Mm -hmm. Okay, so at this time, like basically all of the experiments that I had done in graduate school, I did them you know, as a benchtop biochemist would, I purified proteins from huge vats of bacteria. I did experiments in plate readers and spectrophotometers with cuvettes. It was very like low throughput. <laughs> and um, as we started doing all these sequence analyses, we were like, like I have, there's so much I want to do. There's like all of these mutations I want to make. Like I need to be able to get to higher throughput to be able to, um, explore enzymes more <laughs> and at the same time um 
the Hirschlag lab, Dan's lab and Polly Fordyce, who was an assistant professor um, at the time at Stanford, she is now a, a full professor. Um, and I think recently, a few days ago, a, it was a few days ago, I think the announcement for Polly. Yeah, she like, just got tenure. Yeah, she got tenure. Yep. And so they had had this collaboration to use these microfluidic devices that um, that Polly had developed when she was a postdoc to study enzymes. And Craig Markin, who is a postdoc in the lab, and Daniel Mactari, um, spent a lot of time doing, like, setting this up, doing all like proof of principle experiments. They um, did, um, like, got KCAP and KM values for hundreds of different path A orthologs. And um, it was, you know, a Herculean effort, really. And at that time, I was like, oh, this is amazing like this is this is this will solve my throughput problem and so um i was this was like pandemic time i had written my thesis i was about to defend polly was on my committee um she had been a mentor to me also throughout graduate school i would you know come to her with data she'd give her opinion and it was always a relationship i really loved and i um i decided um, you know with polly and then also there was um a uh, through an interaction um i guess at the time i what i really wanted to do is not only increase throughput for doing enzymology but i also wanted to integrate um uh biochemical experiments with things in vivo in, in vivo like fitness measurements and so i approached gavin sherlock who is in the genetics department at stanford he's a professor there and Polly and I said, can I join your lab as a postdoc jointly? But I, and I also said, I also want to let you know, I am applying for this uh, Sandler Fellows program at UCSF. So there's a chance I won't be here that long. And they were really supportive, honestly, wonderfully supportive. And they said, yes, you can come. Uh, we will support you in your independent position if that happens. Um, and I think at the time I kind of was like, eh, you know, I may not, I probably won't get this position, um, but I'm going to go for it. And so I ended up getting an offer from UCSF to start my own lab as a Sandler Fellow, um, like a month into my postdoc, basically. And so I ended up um, uh, delaying my start so that I could have more time as a postdoc learning these methods. Um, and then I brought them to my lab here at UCSF. And so we are doing high throughput biochemistry with microfluidics here we um are kind of pushing the limits of this technology i think developing new assays and new systems and it's really exciting and it was very much enabled by having great mentors um, and i know you have a hard stop so i want to i want to maybe we can talk about your new your research due now two years from now uh and then we can talk yeah, but mm -hmm. maybe one quick thing is just making that transition from doing the science to lead a group that does science, and especially for research like yours that's inter inter interdisciplinary, how did you one? How do you think about like assembling the lab, and how do you how, do you, how did you learn how to lead a lab and set directions and you know be you know um, let people do that side project uh, and you know set those values so you can you know make great discoveries consistently. Mm, okay, yeah, so because the type of microfluidics that we're doing in the lab is so niche 
I basically don't expect anybody to come in knowing how to do this. Like there's maybe a handful of labs in the whole world that can do this type of microfluidics. Um, and because it's quite complicated, so I don't expect anybody to know how to do this going into it. Um, and so there's a strong emphasis on like, we're going to train you from the ground up to do a little bit of engineering, to do biochemistry, to do, you know, technology development. Um, and so I would say like, we, we, we're now, so we're a year in, in the lab and we're kind of, people are kind of um, like specializing a little bit more than I anticipated. <laughs> so I joke with my lab members who are totally gonna find this and make a ton of fun of me that <laughs> we, we have almost like cores in the lab. Like I have someone who is like really good at cloning. And so yeah. they're like, the cloning core and we have the protein purification core and we have the computation core um and but of course everyone's young everyone is learning too but it it it's a really kind of yeah it, it's really interesting and i think maybe i coming into this i don't know if i had like a plan per se because human beings are kind of unplannable in a way. You assemble the group and you adapt. You adapt all the time, constantly, about like, what do we need to do? Um, and as far as setting research directions, I think like we, um, like I had a plan. I was like, we're going to study, we're going to continue studying temperature adaptation. And you know, that's the direction the lab is going to go, mostly. But of course, you start here at UCSF. UCSF is amazing. Oh, there's all of these people studying super interesting things. And so we like are quickly diverging. <laughs> We're yeah. studying viral proteins. We're studying drug resistance, which is a really interesting evolutionary pressure to go after. Um, we're studying enzymes that are anti-cancer targets. Um, we're developing new technologies for the devices so that we don't just do we don't just measure enzyme kinetics, but we measure protein-protein interactions. We measure like other interesting, unique things. Um, and I guess I would say, like, as far as the like the extra projects, I I found, and I really believe this, that is like people are really motivated to work on things that they are intellectually and personally responsible for. So we I talk to a lot of the people in my lab all the time and we are constantly being like right what are you interested in like how can we how can we take that interest and combine it with our expertise in the lab and the goals to push things forward yes in the trajectory that I imagine but also with your own unique flavor and so everyone's projects have their own flavor that really um I think captures their own intellectual creativity and I love that cool okay and maybe I think a common theme across this whole conversation is like, one, you're always all in. And then uh, two, you have great mentors. And then you, I hope you think you're conferring that mentorship, you know, you're, you're passing it along. Um, you know, any lessons, maybe like, you know, for somebody who was in your position when you were 10 years ago, maybe they're in college, you know, maybe they're uh, entering grad school, coming out of grad school. Um, any kind of lessons in terms of like, making a good decision for yourself whether start starting a lab, getting an industry job, maybe doing, become an artist or who, whatever, but like any kind of lessons you want in terms of decision-making. Yeah, so I think like, it's impossible to know whether you're making the right decision. <laughs> 
you know, it's kind of like you brought up this concept of epistasis. It's like there's epistasis within our lives too, right? You make a choice. Um, and sometimes that choice has, you know, unintentional effects. But I think that it's important, one, to be flexible, yeah. you know, reevaluate as necessary, but also, um, you know, commit you to your decision. Things are going to be hard, but in hindsight, they're never as challenging as you think they are in the moment. Um, and we all make it through things. And, you know, science is very both cyclical in the yeah. sense it's really intense at times, less intense at others, um, and but also is a marathon. And I think like, you know, reevaluating, but also making those decisions when you're and it's not in a time of like really intense work or struggle is is a good idea. That's awesome. Um, oh. Yeah, I guess the other thing I'd say is for advice is like choose your mentors yeah. very wisely because you're going to end up like them a little bit, like a little bit of your mentor is going to be you. <laughs> and so you kind of choose someone you like, like choose somebody who you respect and yeah. choose someone you like. <laughs> it's really all about you end up becoming your mentor. Uh, <laughs> you do. It's, it's inevitable. Honestly, that's crazy. That's funny. <laughs> you can't help it. <laughs> okay, Omar, thank you for doing this. Uh, it's gonna really yes. help a lot of people. Uh, we'll touch base in two years or so. So, and you have all these papers, and I'm, I'm sure this the stuff you're gonna publish in the next few years is gonna be like really awesome. I'm gonna look forward to reading it. But I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Great. It was really fun. Thank you so much.